0: open with us to Acts chapter 4. It will also be projected behind us. We have Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home and just take that as our gift to you. We would love to get to know you and we would love for you to get to know God's Word. Um, As we look at this passage, this is one of those passages that has a lot of famous verses in it. Almost too many famous verses to cover in one message, but all of them are going to be in one message because they are all interconnected to one key idea. And we're going to cover it in its context, but to really understand this passage, You need to understand verse 11, so look with me at that. It says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So in that passage, Jesus is called the chief cornerstone, which is an analogy that would have been understood in that culture a lot more than we would tend to understand it today in this culture, but the whole point of the passage is that Jesus is the one and only cornerstone, and either people stand upon that cornerstone and are saved by him, or they are crushed under the weight of that cornerstone. So Jesus, the cornerstone, is the key to unlocking this entire passage But he's also the key to understanding and unlocking the entire Bible and the key to understanding and unlocking all of human history. And to make that point, I'm going to show you a two and a half minute video that says it better than I can. And then we'll jump back into our text. Bible basically about me and what I must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? When you read in Luke and Acts how Jesus in those 40 days uh, got his disciples together 40 days before he ascended after he was raised, what was he doing? Basically he was saying everything in the Old Testament is about me. He says the reason you didn't understand what I was about was you didn't realize if i perish i perish perish i'll perish for them to save my people jesus is the true and better jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in he's the real passover lamb he's he's the true temple the true prophet the true priest the true king the true sacrifice the true lamb the true light the true bread the bible's not about you then you are going to live life as if you are the cornerstone and all of life is going to be just filled with depression and frustration when your little empire does not give you the satisfaction that you hoped that it would give you. And the reason that I started with verse 11 and then circled back is, if you thought that you were the architect of your own life, the architect of your own salvation, that you hold the keys to heaven and hell. If that's what you thought, in the way that a lot of churchy folk of that day taught, and the way that a lot of churchy folk today still think, then it makes a whole lot more sense of the frustration that you are going to see as we begin to open this text in a minute. But if you understand that Jesus is the only cornerstone, that he is the only strong foundation, that he's the only firm foundation, and that you're building on a foundation that cannot be ever shaken, that he is the only key to the kingdom, not just this kingdom, but the true kingdom that we will see revealed when all of his glories are revealed someday, then you're going to have a different outlook. And it's going to give a result of a different boldness. As Christians, we can be bold not because we're smarter than others and not because we're good enough to have figured out the truth, but because God, in his infinite mercy and grace, revealed his truth to our rebellious hearts. But if you do not have that confidence it's really easy to see why the people in the passage that we're about to look at feel threatened and feel shaken. Jonathan Edwards once said that this world is all the heaven that an unbeliever will ever experience, and it's all the hell that a believer will ever experience. Wrap your minds around that for a second. So as we look at verse 1, the key is that they did not like the fact that their little kingdom was threatened because it was all that they had. And then you have this ragtag group of Jesus freaks coming to proclaim a different kingdom, one that was built on a cornerstone, one that was just a foretaste of the true kingdom that is yet to be revealed and one that was completely rejected by those who crucified the Lord of glory. Um, Not much has changed. People did not like hearing that they had built on a faulty foundation and they were trying to gain access to a kingdom even though they were carrying the wrong set of keys, just like people don't like hearing it today. I don't know if any of you guys are the kind of people that have one of those key rings that just has a gajillion keys on it. But have you ever experienced the frustration of trying to open a door in the dark and it's just wrong key after wrong key after wrong key? key, well that's exactly what's happening here in Acts chapter 4. They're trying to gain access even though it's just wrong key after wrong key and their frustration is pouring out on the disciples. So I'm going to pray and we're going to dig in. Jesus, I pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word. I pray that people would get saved today. I pray that you would hide my inadequacies behind the cross, Lord, that I would not get in the way of what it is that you want to do here this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would work through us, even in spite of us, Lord, to manifest glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the passage opens, the people who had once been known as the religious leaders, were coming to terms with the fact that they were losing their grip on the position of privilege that they had been very comfortable holding. Look with me at verses 1-4 through 4 of chapter 4. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. And I could stop right there and preach a sermon because Man, do I love to annoy religious people. Uh, I, I would say that it is one of my primary callings in life to just annoy religious folks. So if you're here and you get annoyed by religious things, may you leave sufficiently annoyed today. But it says that they were annoyed because the teaching of the people and the proclaiming of Jesus the resurrection of the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came was about five. Thousands. So we've already seen in the Gospels that they plotted together to kill Jesus, that they were willing to do anything that it took to hold on to this illusion of authority. They may have given lip service to trusting in God's authority, but that's all it was. It was simply just lip service. They thought that they were in and of themselves their own authority. They thought that they were the people's authority. And in many ways, they thought that they were even God's authority. How warped is your thinking if you've gotten to that point. But isn't that what we're doing each and every time that we put God in our box saying that he cannot work in any way that might be mighty outside of the box that we have put him into. When we do that, we're saying, God, you can only work within the confines of the parameters that we have chosen to put around you. And when we do that, we are not submitting to God as authority. We are asking God to submit to our box as his authority. And when we're doing that, we are not worshiping Christ. We are asking Christ to worship our box. And God is not in the business of worshiping our boxes. He's in the business of exploding them and blowing them up. So they're trying to pull the authority card, and just a quick tangent, when somebody tries to pull the authority card, I'm just going to tell you, they've already lost. I've been a Christian long enough to see people try to pull the authority card in so many weird ways. Like when they come up to you and they tell you, My name is Archbishop High Reverend of the True Church of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady of whatever. I went to such and such a seminary. I have this many degrees hanging on my wall. My church has grown to be this size under the sheer power of my awesomeness. And I've been around long enough to know that whenever somebody tells you the size of their church, they're lying. So when somebody tells me the size of their church, I just divide it by five. And I'm like, that's that's probably the... There's nine people meeting in your basement, bro. We know the truth (laughs) here, so don't even come at me with that. But what they're doing as they're doing that is they are trying to establish a place of authority over you. And there is a great answer to give to somebody to you if they try to pull that and it's only three words. You can memorize it, I guarantee it, and it's I don't care. I don't care what your credentials are. I don't care what it is that makes you think that you are so important. I want to hear about Jesus. Don't give me your identity issues. Take them to the cross and let Jesus deal with them. And while you're giving me Jesus, give yourself some Jesus too. And maybe you'll take care of those identity issues that make you feel like you have to brag in your credentials rather than boasting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it says that they were greatly annoyed. What were these people so mad about? It says right there in verse 2, it says that they were annoyed because the disciples were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's it, isn't it? I mean, there's really... I was one of those Christians, I don't know if anybody here fits the bill. When I got saved, I got super into apologetics. I wanted to be able to prove every single doctrine, prove every single thing. I wanted to be able to get into a fight with anybody and be able to use the Bible as a club rather than understanding the gospel of grace. And I remember studying Noah's Ark and how many cubits it was and how many animals it would take to fit into a cubit and what a species was at the time and how it would take for all the animals to have been able to fit on the ark and then repopulate the earth and I go to work and it's I'm working for a Mormon company so there's all these Mormons there and my atheist boss and I'm like Hey, look, you, Trinity, it's right here. Boom, boom, boom. If you knew the Greek, you would see this. Boom, boom, boom. If you knew the Hebrew of Jeremiah 23, six, you would know this. Boom, boom, boom. And then the guy's like, yeah, well, what about Noah and that dumb old ark? I'm like, do you even understand what a cubit is? Do you know what a species is? And I'm like, Boo, boom, 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 <laughs> boom. And the guy was like, wow, man, that's really impressive. Except you're a jerk, and I never want to be like you. <laughs> I remember walking home just crushed, literally in tears saying, wow, that's where my faith has brought me. I'm so intelligent that I've learned to use my credentials to make other people feel like garbage about themselves. Man, is that ever going to win people to the kingdom of Jesus Christ? But there's no point in debating with people about our religion. These guys had some sort of religious authority that they believed made them some sort of big shot. But guess what? You hold the trump card. My God rose from the dead. That wins every time. There's nothing they can throw on top of that. They don't have another card that they're holding in their pocket. If you go to the tomb of their God, you know what you're going to find? A rotting corpse. If you go to the tomb of my God, you know what you're going to find? Nothing! It's empty. We win. And they realize that. Because unlike every other religious figure, our God had the authority in and of Himself to take death and snatch it up and rise from the grave. And so have all those who have placed their faith in them. They're going to rise as well. So what the religious leaders were upset about is they preached a powerless religion that was not mighty to save. And here's Peter and John, two common men, preaching a gospel of power over death. So they threw them in prison and gave them a warning. But guess what? Even if they died in prison, guess what would have happened? They were still going to rise from the dead someday because our God is mighty to save. And as we move on in the text, just like I told you, they were trying to drop the authority card. Here they are circling back again and it's all about power. Look with me starting at verse 5. It says, On the next day their rulers and their elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas... And John and Alexander, who were of the high priest's family, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, or by what name, did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven amongst men by which we may all be saved. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to bully Peter. And they bring them out of jail and they try to intimidate them, or at least they're trying to shut them up. So in verse 7, they ask them directly, by what power did you just do the miracle that we just heard about in chapter 3 that we looked at? last week and you have to love that question I mean if there has ever been a softball in the history of Christianity they just lob that up there to him, and there's Peter right in his wheelhouse ready to just crank on that thing and knock it what they're basically saying hey Peter would you please preach the gospel to us and preach to us in the name of Jesus in front of all of the governing authorities that rule our land and there's Peter man he takes the opportunity and he cranks on it and you have to love how Peter answers the question you want to know you want to know what power this was done and first we're told that in order to give an offense, a defense it didn't even come from Peter that it came because he was filled with the ghost. And then the Holy Ghost starts to speak through him. But then Peter is quick to share where the power comes from. And the power is still the same power that we leave here with today when we walk out those doors. It's the power of the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And this power gave the disciples a boldness. Guys, these were not bold men by nature these were cowards who ran away from the line of fire not heroes who ran towards it but now they're filled with the power of the ghost and they are empowered to speak in the mighty name of jesus the only one in whose name there is power as the hymn writer says there is power in the name of jesus There is power in the name of Jesus, and in case you missed it, he repeats it again. There is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. And then Peter tells them the secret behind their power. That's what they're asking for. Hey, what is the secret behind the power that we're seeing here, Peter? What is the secret behind the boldness? The boldness is the chief cornerstone whom you have rejected. I love how he doesn't tell them that they are without a foundation. That's a lie. We can't tell the world that they are without a foundation a foundation. He says that they do in fact have a foundation in verse 11. He just says that they were the architect of it. They were the ones that built it. They did not build it on the one that God had built. And they rejected the true cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the only cornerstone that God himself had built. And Peter makes it very clear to tell them where the source of the power and authority comes from he tells them that this is not a power this is the power this is not a cornerstone this is the cornerstone this is not a key to get in this is the master key this is not a door as jesus said i am the door This was not a foundation. This is the foundation. And there is no other name. There is no other key. There is no other door. There is no other strong foundation to build upon. And if you are here and you're searching for a different foundation, let me just speak to your hearts for a moment, because I don't presume that just because you've come to a church that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I sat in churches for many years not knowing who Jesus was. I thought it was a religious thing that religious people did because they felt guilty about something inside, so they had to go somewhere in order to deal with that guilt. So you all gathered together as a bunch of guilty, miserable people on Sundays. That's what I thought. As I was in churches on Sunday looking out at the person that was doing what I was doing. And if you're here searching for a different foundation, let me encourage you as you look at the different reactions and the people in this passage, it will lead you to frustration. You will not find what you are looking for in any other foundation other than Jesus. You can search the world over and you will not find what you are looking for other than the foundation that is Jesus Christ. It will end in disaster both here in this life and eternally. And it will cut you off from the joy of knowing Him. I'm not here to preach fire and brimstone. There is joy unspeakable in knowing Christ. I thought that I knew what joy was apart from relationship with Jesus. I knew nothing. I spoke from ignorance. There is a joy that comes into your life when Christ comes into your life that you cannot find anywhere else, because He loves you too much to allow you to find it anywhere else. If you could find it anywhere else, then you would be satisfied finding it in somewhere else, and you would not know Him, the true giver of joy, the only one who is intended to be that strong foundation of joy. If you're here today and you're looking for joy, but you've realized that you have built your life on shifting sand and you're tired of it shifting. Let me encourage you. Look at him. Look at Jesus, the creator of joy. There is no joy outside of him. There is momentary happiness. There are things that can distract us from the miseries of this world. But there is joy in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. And Christian, let me speak to you for a moment. I know a lot of folks, and I say this with great pain in my heart. I know a lot of folks who got saved and knew the joy of coming to know Jesus. And Jesus was that cornerstone that it speaks about in verse 11. Jesus was that strong foundation. They found it, and they exuberantly proclaimed that he found it. I'm not endorsing all of this guy's theology, but it's like when Watchman Nee got saved, the guy started running up and down the streets of China going, I found it! I found it! It. I found it. He just wanted everybody to know that he found the only joy, the thing that his heart had been longing for. He found it in Christ. And I know many a Christian who has experienced that and now their foundation has shifted. Yeah, sure, they still believe on Jesus Christ as the foundation of on which their salvation is built upon. But in reality, if you were to look at the center of gravity of their life, if you were to look at the locus of what their life is actually built upon, there would be no testimony or fragrance of Jesus to where you would say, this person's feet are squarely upon that rock that is Jesus Christ. And Christian, if you've come here and you knew at one time, if you said, I knew this joy, and I experienced it I tasted and saw that he is good and now I'm just trying to cram a bunch of other things onto that foundation with me I'm trying to stand on this foundation but now I'm trying to move a little bit more over here and a little bit more over here and slowly it's just getting crowded out to where you're just kind of hanging on oh Jesus still be my foundation he's not going to let you go He's good like that. We can't lose our salvation because you did nothing to earn it to begin with. But you sure can start to develop cracks in that foundation as you try to cram other things on it that were never intended to be there. Jesus is the foundation. Not Jesus plus. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Do you get that? Jesus... Plus anything equals nothing. Christian, let me level with you. If you are trying to build other things as your foundation, if it is Christ, and then you will experience frustration in this life if you are not experiencing it already. I know it because I see so many Christians. I see Christians that want to come in and say, why am I not getting the richness out of this Christian life? And I'm like, well, tell me about your life. And they start to unfold all of the things that are going on in their life. And I'm like, where's Jesus even fit in there? You couldn't squeeze Him in there if you had a shoehorn." So why are you surprised if the foundation is feeling shaky underneath you? Christ is not a cornerstone. It's Christ. That's it. Jesus Christ cannot be your something. If he's your anything, he must be your everything. Get that. Jesus Christ cannot be your something. If he's your anything, he must be your everything. He is the cornerstone. I dare you. I'm going to... I'm one of those people that loved dares. Any anybody else like that? The macho person that just that just loves dare. A bit. I mean, you guys know if you've known me for any time, you know that I want to fight a grizzly bear. And all it would take is being in the same place at the same time and somebody saying, "I dare you to," and and I'd be like, "All right, man." Because the, the the trick is they don't have thumbs. So I'm just, you just got to get inside on it and just throw th- throw a couple inside. Points. But so so I I I I like dares. I'm gonna dare you to pray. That's not a big dare, right? I've done some really foolish things as theirs. I've drank glasses of hot sauce, you know. I I've you know all those silly macho things that men do. I've done those things. Surely we can dare you to pray a prayer, right? I dare you to pray the prayer of Augustine. Lord, let my heart remain restless until it rests only in you. I dare you to have the guts to pray that prayer. Lord, let my life be filled with restlessness until it learns to rest squarely in Christ. And then walk in obedience. And look what happens. Look what happens when people observe when your life is built on the cornerstone. Look at verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated men, and they were astonished, and they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What does it say that they were able to oppose? What what did they say in opposition when they observed? Nothing. There was nothing that they could say as they smelt the fragrant aroma of Christ being manifested in and through their lives. How powerful is that? Brothers and sisters, the greatest apologetic for the truth of Christianity is a life that is so sold out squarely on the gospel. One of my mentors used to say, live your life in such a way that it demands a gospel explanation. Hear that again. Live your life in such a way that it demands a gospel explanation. Where somebody has to be able to look at your life and say there is no other explanation other than the supernatural God working in and through that life. Be so firmly rooted on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ that it's the only explanation that can be given. Not when I look at him... I see a very religious man. When I talk to her, she is very dedicated to her church. Let the only explanation to your life be they have been in the presence of Jesus. Let me say that again. That's not one of those statements that you should just hear and be like, "All right, that's cool. I'm going to go do my thing now. Let the only explanation... To your life be, they have been in the presence of Jesus. Look what they did not notice. They did not notice their education. They did not notice their articulation. They noticed the presence of Jesus... And these weren't people that were going to church. This wasn't like, hey, I'm trying to encourage my brother in Christ. Every time I'm with Gregory, every time I'm with Pat, I can't help but notice Jesus through their lives. These were their enemies that were speaking. And they were saying, we can't help but notice that these people have been in the very presence of Jesus himself. And it's ironic Because I have seen the opposite so many times. I have been with people on multiple occasions and thought, these are highly educated men, but they don't know Jesus. I went on a mission trip where I got to lead a bunch of Princeton Seminary students, and they were telling me all of the feminine attributes of Mother God. And I was like, man, you're so smart, you're stupid. You're paying to get this education. Like, you're paying good money to be this dumb. How is this possible? I didn't notice. You know what I didn't sense? Nowhere was like, ah, oh, that's that familiar smell. I smell him. I know, I know the smell of him. Jesus is present. I smell Dead theology. And I've smelt it so many times. People that are highly educated but lacking the presence of Jesus. But here, just being in their presence, their enemies could not help but proclaim, these people know Christ. Redeemer Fellowship, is there a greater compliment? Is there anything else you would rather have somebody say when they walk through the doors of this church? Is there any greater testimony somebody could give than to walk through and say, that place reeks like Christ. And I can't help but smell it. Every time I'm around these people, they're common folk, but there's something different about them. And that something is that they have been in the very presence of Jesus and now it radiates glory from their faces from being in that presence. So these religious folk, they realize that they're not going to shake the faith of those who are firmly planted on the cornerstone. So let's finish out the story and see what they did to them. They did a whole bunch of nothing like blowhards usually do. But when they had commanded them... To leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do to these men? For a notable sign had been performed to them, and it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. I don't know if you know anything about the scientific method, but that's not how you even apply the. I'm not even talking about faith. That's not how you apply the scientific method. You don't say, Something notable was done in our presence So let's confer together how we can deny the existence of that which we just saw. That's not even being intellectually honest let alone being spiritually honest. I love how people love to accuse Christianity of being intellectually ill-informed when the best that they can come up with is saying there was something that was undeniable that was done and the people are noticing it too. So let's come up with a story so that we can try to do away with this sign that the people had seen. But in order for it to spread no further, let us warn them to speak no more in that name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Listen to this. I mean, I've heard so many sermons where people are just guilting people into evangelism. Hey, get out there. Don't you know that people are starving? And don't you care enough to go and tell them about Jesus? For the cup of coffee a day, you could save all of Africa. So why are you drinking Starbucks? What's your problem? That's not what they did. Nope. They preached a different sermon. It says, we can't shut up about this stuff. We can't help but speak the name of Jesus. Man, if more evangelistic messages were preached like that and we stopped using guilt and condemnation to encourage our people, but they were just so in love with the fragrant aroma of Jesus that they were able to join in unison with Peter and say, we can't help it. I mean, I know you're telling me, not, I, I know that every time I come to Thanksgiving dinner that I'm the Jesus guy and, 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 and you're probably tired, but I, I can't help it. I'm just in love with him. And this is what somebody that's in love does. I speak about the one that I'm in love with. For we cannot help to speak of that which we have seen and heard. And when they have further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom the sign, the healing was performed, was more than 40 years old. So, the... Authorities did the only thing that authorities can do in a situation like that. Stop proclaiming Jesus or we'll take away your freedoms or liberties, is what they said to them. And folks, we might face that as a nation in our lifetime. That's a reality. That's a sobering reality. I, I, I weep when I think that my kids may not grow up in the world that I grew up in and the punishment was to say if you continue to proclaim this name of Jesus then we will continue to take away your freedoms and liberties we might face that as a nation why why would we think that we're exempt this is what our brothers in South Sudan North Korea Chad Pakistan Afghanistan and I could keep going and going and going They can't stop them from speaking the name of Jesus, but they're saying there might be a cost attached to it. We've been blessed. I might even throw the word spoiled in there. But Peter and John answered back in a way that you can only answer if you've been with Jesus. They say we can't help but speak in his name. If your life has built on the cornerstone, then you only have one option, and they summarize it beautifully. It comes down to obeying you or we're going to obey Jesus. We're going to listen to you or we're going to listen to God. And they saw it as we only have one option because obeying you isn't one of them. This power did not come from them, guys. Left of themselves, these folks were cowards. This is the spirit of, Talking, you, Christian, have the same power working inside of you. They were saying, as the writer of my favorite spiritual, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And I want to ask you, be honest, man, because you gain no benefit by not being honest. I can't jump in your heart and see the answer. And even if I could, what am I going to do to you? Um, are you so firmly planted on the cornerstone that you could honestly say you could have all this world, but give me Jesus? Does your life bear witness to that reality? Or are you trying to squeeze as much of the world system onto that cornerstone with you while still straddling one leg on the cornerstone of Christ? Do your priorities bear witness to, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Does your heart that's beating inside of your chest right now bear witness to the fact that you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And before we close, I want to do something really, really cool because it's something that Luke does that I've never seen until really exegeting this passage. And it's not just because I want to show you something cool, but the deeper I went into this passage, the more I realized that Luke was very intentional in the way that he laid this out. Luke goes to the folly of building on your own self-centered, man-made foundations, and he places each one of them side by side with the power of building on the foundation of Christ. And since the main point of the passage is being built on the chief cornerstone of Christ, Luke puts the two side by side. And what he's trying to do is make it really obvious that a life that is built on anything other than the cornerstone of Christ will crumble. And the life that is built on Christ, the one and only cornerstone, will continue to stand and take on the aroma of Jesus. So as we go through these side-by-side comparisons, be honest with your heart. Ask yourselves, what foundation am I really building on? Examine the fruit in your life. Does the fruit in your life testify of one who has been built on the foundation of the cornerstone of Christ? Remember that Luke makes it really clear when he points out the religious cornerstone that these bitter people were built on. And he refers to that as the cornerstone you built, he tells them. But we're going to close by looking at the cornerstone that God has built, the only true cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So as we look at the fruit, be honest with your heart and say, what am I built on? So look, side by side, if you just look at them verse by verse, the faulty foundation, the people were greatly annoyed as they looked at the people's hope, the right foundation, they were proclaiming hope through Christ's resurrection from the dead. Next we see in verse 3, by being built on the faulty cornerstone, they tried to silence the gospel from going forth. But when you're built on the right foundation, they proclaimed and believed in spite of the threats to try to silence them and make them stop. Then we see side by side, when you're built on the wrong foundation, conspiring together and trying to silence the truth of the gospel from going forth. The right foundation being quick to give an account of the glory of God and that that's all it is, the glory of God being manifested in and through us. Faulty, brought about brokenness and tried to take life. The right foundation brings about wholeness resulting in the restoration Of life. In verses 9 and 10, the faulty foundation is full of religion, leading to cowardice. The right foundation is full of boldness, leading to the proclamation of the gospel, even in the face of great opposition. As we look at the next verse, we see that they built their own cornerstone. But when you look at the right foundation, Christ is the only true, immovable, unshakable cornerstone. Faulty, they tried to work out their own way of salvation, but the right foundation says there is salvation in no other name by which man might be saved, given under heaven than the man Jesus Christ. The faulty, you see, highly educated, but they had no words of eternal life. The right it wasn't about their education, but it was obvious that they had been with Jesus. In the faulty, you see a powerless religion. In the correct, you see a powerful relationship. In the faulty, you see people trying to stop the truth from going forth because of their own agenda in verses 16. Through eighteen In the right, you see that they could not help but speak of the wonders of all that Christ had done in their life. The faulty, they go away bitter and frustrated. The right, they go away in awe and reverence of their God. So just a couple questions for you to contemplate as we take communion. Have you been building your life on your own cornerstone or submitting your life to the chief cornerstone. Are you quick to give glory to God like Peter was when he is at work in your life? Or do you pretend that it is the work of your own hands? If somebody spent time in your presence, would they just be able to smell that person's been with Jesus? Or would they smell the aroma of death unto death? Is the fruit of your life, please hear this, is the fruit of your life that you are growing in bitterness and frustration? As you sit here today, are you surrounded with bitterness and frustration? Or is the fruit of your life worship and Christ-likeness? Can you truly say that your life is increasingly built on the chief cornerstone? And the final question, Are you looking for anything else under heaven by which you might be saved other than the name of Jesus? He's here. Cry out to Him. We are going to take communion now and it is a proclamation of the beauty of the chief cornerstone who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, thank You that You have revealed to us the true cornerstone not through any wisdom or cunning on our part, but by the grace and mercy on yours. pray that as we partake of communion that it would be a celebration that that firm cornerstone still stands. In Jesus' name. Amen. In this time of communion, if you um, know Jesus as your Savior this morning, then it's the time for us as Christians to remember his death, his, his blood that was shed for us, his body that was broken for us. If you're not quite sure if you are a Christian this morning. um,